Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX, design, and product management professionals. My guest today is Bob Baxley. Bob is a design executive who lives and works in Silicon Valley. He currently serves as the Senior Vice President of Design and Experience at ThoughtSpot, a business intelligence and data analytics platform. Prior to ThoughtSpot, Bob was head of product design at Pinterest, where he built, led, and managed a multifaceted design team responsible for both the consumer and business-facing aspects of the product. Starting in 2006, Bob spent over eight years at Apple, where he served in senior leadership roles in Apple's retail and e-commerce teams. As a director of design, Bob hired and led the creative team responsible for a broad variety of applications, including the Apple Online Store, the Apple Store app, and the transactional areas of iPhoto and GarageBand. As director of design for Yahoo Search, Bob built and led the design team that created Yahoo Answers and designed other search-centric properties. The author of Making the Web Work, Bob is also a sought-after speaker, sharing his experiences and observations about a range of topics related to design, technology, innovation, and the culture of Silicon Valley. He holds a BA in History and a Bachelor of Science in Radio, Television, and Film from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a Master of Liberal Arts from Stanford University. Bob, welcome to the show. Brendan, thanks for having me. Great to be here. It is great to have you here, Bob. I have to say, you give some amazing talks, and I have thoroughly enjoyed researching for today's conversation. Thank I, you. I want to go into many of those things that came to mind when I was looking at those talks today. But I also want to let you know that I was speaking with Peter Morville a couple of weeks ago, and he's just adopted three baby goats. How do you feel about goats, Bob? <laughs> Well, as you know, Brendan, I was mauled by a baby goat when I was young. <laughs> I was at a petting zoo. And don't let anybody kid you. It's not a petting zoo. It's a baby goat attacking zoo. And I remember being knocked to the knocked down on my back with some little baby goat, those crazy eyes glaring down at me as they were trying to grab my food. I'm generally not a speciesist. I try to love all animals, but goats have a special, should we just say a special place in my heart. <laughs> well, we won't dwell too long on goats. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, I feel like we've set the tone for the interview. There we go. <laughs> So, Bob, as I mentioned, I've watched a few of your talks and some of your interviews recently, and I got a very real sense that you love computers and computing. Why do you love computers, and when did this love affair begin? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's kind of I, I try not I'm not sure I can explain it at a really fundamental level. It's like, why does somebody love baseball? Why does somebody love chess? Why does somebody love Legos? I remember the first time I saw a computer, you know, in various moments that I've had with, with other technical professionals, it's always fun. And I'd encourage everybody listening now to do this, just as they say, pause the video 
And just think for a moment for yourself, like when was the first time you saw a computer? Because if you can remember the first time you saw a computer, I'm almost certain it was this magical experience. And I don't know how to explain that. I just know that when I've talked to people about it, like all of them describe it with kind of the same passion and memory that I have. And it just comes back in this amazing rush of memory. And they talk about the computer at home and how they first got into Photoshop. You know, I'm a little bit older than most of the people in the profession. And first time I saw a computer was probably around 1976. I was at a friend's house. I was maybe 11 or something, 11, 12. He had a, a home-built Heathkit computer, which was a kit computer that he'd put together. And uh, it had this tiny little black and white screen. And I remember, I mean, I can conjure it up in my head right this second, better than I can remember my own childhood bedroom. And I can remember that moment when Glenn Wilkinson hit a key on the keyboard and something changed on the screen. And it was just amazing. It's just such a phenomenal moment. And, you know, perhaps it's because I didn't have home video. Like I never felt in control of something that happened on the screen before. So to see that you could do that was just this amazing feeling. And then I learned to program when I was in junior high, I got into basic and I think, you know, my rather ADHD brain just sort of took really well to the systems of, you know, how systems work in computing and the concepts. And I just sort of took off learning basic and just completely fell in love with programming and computing. And I don't know, I, I think for a while I kind of wrestled with it and I sort of thought, it's kind of not cool to be a nerd or like somehow I wasn't supposed to say that computing was my medium. But in recent years, you know, I've sort of been more comfortable acknowledging that. And now I kind of think about computing as my medium in the same way that filmmaker might think about movies as their medium or a musician might think about the saxophone or the piano or, you know, sports figures think about sports. You know, they love the thing. And so I can't fully explain it, but as you can hopefully tell, <laughs> the reality is that I just personally really, really love computing. I just think it's freaking magic. It is freaking magic. And I, I too remember that day that actually it was my grandparents and I was living next to them with my mum at the time. And I must have been about 10. And I remember the computer being unboxed and turning it on. And this is back in the days, this is 95. So 95, Windows 95 was on the machine. Mm -hmm. and, and just mm -hmm. the, the magic and the, the magic of the modem, that sound that it used to make, you know, this is a 28.8K yeah. modem or something at the time. <laughs> yeah. Mental. But that sense of marvel and wonder of what awaited you once you'd connected and what you could learn and where you could go. You know, you've got two adult children now, Bob, you know, I think you mentioned mm -hmm. they were 20 mm -hmm. in the early 20s. Mm -hmm. Do you get the sense that that marvel and wonder about computing is shared by people of that age or younger that have grown up with these machines just around them in an omnipresent way? Yeah, not quite as much. You know, Alan Kay, a uh, famous Silicon Valley legend, uh, he had a great quote that uh, technology is anything that was born after, that was created after you were born. So technology is anything invented after you were born, <laughs> you know? And so from my kids now, you know, the iPhone came out when they were seven or eight, something like that in elementary school. And of course we had those at the house early on because I was working at Apple and we just brought all that stuff home. Didn't quite realize the impact it might have on their young minds. But at the time, it seemed really cool. So the computers were around the house. But I remember uh, this pretty funny moment, actually, when I got my son his first laptop for school. And I was so excited because he also has kind of a programmer's mind. And I, I gave it to him kind of hoping he was going to kind of get into it and learn how to program and stuff. And we were recently having a discussion. Again, now he's like almost 23. And at the time, 
you know, his first laptop for school, he's like 13 or something. And I was like, yeah, just, you know, hoped you were going to turn into this programming thing. And instead, you know, you just turned it into a portable video game system. And, and now he's gotten into programming and he looked at me and he kind of goes, you bought me a computer when I was in high school or uh, elementary school thinking I was going to turn it into a programming device. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, that was kind of stupid. (laughs) (laughs) With good intentions though, right? Yeah. (laughs) You have a clear memory of when you got a computer. I have a really clear memory of when I first saw a computer. If you, you know, if you listen to interviews with the astronauts, the guys that walked on the moon, they all have really vivid memories of the first time they saw airplanes, you know, and they talk with the same sort of passion. They talk about mechanical objects flying in the sky. And, you know, clearly people like you and I don't, necessarily have that same zeal for for airplanes because we grew up seeing airplanes all the time so you spoke about recently becoming comfortable with being a geek and i think it's pretty clear now that if you look around us in anybody actually who's fortunate enough to have some technology that geeks truly do rule the world and i believe you had a, a nickname back in the day and I wonder just how comfortable were you with that nickname when that came out? And I believe the nickname was Gooey Bob. Gooey Bob, yeah. Uh, well, for one, I think we have to distinguish between geeks and nerds because there is a difference. And I think of myself as a nerd and not a geek. Subtle distinction, but an important one to make. Um, so, well, let's let's go there. What is the distinction? Well, at least in American, or at least my American vernacular, I think of a geek as someone who's socially awkward and not terribly comfortable in civil society, shall we say, whereas I think of a nerd as someone who's, you know, who can nerd out on things, you know, and really get into the nuts. I mean, like you can be a baseball nerd, but that's diff- at least in my vernacular. I also prefer the word nerd to geek because nerd was invented by Dr. Seuss in one of his books. So I just like the origins of the word a little bit more. But And we're going to come to Dr. Seuss because well, okay. got, I know, I know. Yeah, we're going to get there. We are most definitely. Um, yeah. So people get- used to call me Gooey Bob you know, which was kind of cute and clever. A friend of mine uh, gave me that moniker back uh, in the dot-com boom. And I, you know, I was kind of okay with it. It seems, you know, it's not, nobody really uses the phrase gooey anymore. I think everything's going to be gooey. Yeah. I mean, somebody, in case people don't know, gooey is an acronym for graphical user interface, which is to say anything that's not a command line interface, which is to say pretty much any computer any of us will ever interact with is at least a GUI, if not a voice activated system. So I was going to say, if they don't know what a GUI is, they're certainly not going to know what a command line is. Yeah. Unless they're, a, yeah. unless they're an engineer, <laughs> unless they're an engineer. <laughs> the last COBOL programmer on earth. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about getting uncomfortable or what I perceived anyway. This is a big <laughs> assumption here about getting uncomfortable. And it is that I understood that you presented to Steve Jobs several times while you were at Apple, I think four in total. Four, yeah. And you said about him that whatever Steve would say, he would make the work better. So thinking about those times, casting your mind back to when you were in front of Steve, and he's an icon, and I absolutely had to ask you about this. There's not many people that have been in the room presenting design work to Steve Jobs. Which of those times stand out for you and why? What is the one that stands out the most? Uh, Well, for one, I should say I only presented to Steve four times. I worked at Apple for eight years. Uh, Many of my friends who worked on the products that Apple sold, so all the core products that you would think about, they would have presented to Steve so many times they can't even really remember them. So they would have been meeting with Steve, you know, every two weeks or so. So in some ways, if I kind of look back on, I'm a little grateful that I only got four times because I remember them all quite vividly. And I took notes off after all of them because they were so special. 
Um, so I can't say I, I worked with Steve. I got to present to him some very thought out planned work a few times. You know, each one of those meetings has a really strong memory with, you know, associated with it. You know, there was times when he was super direct and we showed him something and, and he, you know, at one point we were showing him a design for the product details page on the online store. And we had suggested putting the ratings and reviews behind the tab. And when he instantly saw it, he's like, <laughs> the quote was something to the effect of, there's no way you're doing that to my store. These ratings and reviews are really important to people. They, you can't hide them behind a click. They have to be visible. You know, that was typical of the kind of feedback we would get. Like he saw it, he had an instant reaction to it. And he just immediately cut to the heart of the issue. You know, these things are super important. You can't put them behind a tab where people have to click on them. And as soon as he said it, you know, we didn't walk out of that meeting with some uncertainty as what we were supposed to do. <laughs> you know, it was that particular comment was uh, concise, clear, and actionable. And every time we presented to him, that was the kind of feedback we would get. That's the kind of feedback we would get from all the Apple executives. And I, I really think this is sort of a story of Apple that doesn't get told. And when I try to talk to other companies, you know, that want to emulate Apple, I try to drive home the point that the executives at Apple have phenomenal taste in design, like just phenomenal. And they really, really care. And so you like wanted to present to them. You wanted to go present to Phil Schiller and Eddie Q and Tim Cook and whoever was in your line of command because they always, always made the work better. And you didn't present to them because they were the CEO or whatever role they had. Like you, it wasn't because of that role that they were going to tell you what to do. It's because they actually had really good taste and they would invariably spot an issue that you had read. You'd been looking at the work for months you know, and I remember, I remember putting, I remember presenting to Eddie a couple of times and every time we'd be looking at this stuff for months, we'd take it into Eddie. He'd look at it for 10 seconds and then he'd just hone in like, oh, well, that thing right there is not going to work. And then we'd all be like, oh, crap. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> you know? so, We're too was, close to it. Uh, you know, it was more than that. Like, again, they just looked at and thought about the design work all the time and had incredibly refined taste. And it's there's I mean, I've personally I've seen very few companies where the executives had that level of refinement, you know. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you, someone who's been in the inside, describe what it was like to receive that feedback and get some insight into to how design was led at Apple. And it seems to me that at least it runs counter to a lot of the commonly accepted wisdom in the field of design at the moment where, you know, you sort of find great design, not within designers, but within the users in which you put your work in front of, and you have those cycles of feedback and learning with customers. It doesn't seem to me that there was a very strong emphasis at Apple, at least not at that time, to work in that way. What was your experience, if any, in involving people outside of Apple in providing feedback on the design work that you and your teams were working on? Well, Apple was and is a unique environment because uh, so much of the promotional strategy and the marketing strategy is around secrets. And so almost by design, you know, you couldn't really talk to people outside the company because it would destroy the secret, which pulled down from the excitement around the launch. So, you know, you have to kind of start with that PR strategy. And then the reason it could work at Apple is because the people inside the company were actually users of those products as well. So, you know, the products that the company was making, whether it's the OS or the hardware or photos or numbers or keynote or whatever, you know, the people making them were bona fide, useful 
meaningful users of those products. So they had sophisticated and thoughtful opinions about those products. Now, if you're, if you're creating something where you're not going to be a user, it's a completely different ballgame. And I experienced that at Apple as well when I worked in the retail team. So I worked in the corporate side of retail, designing some of the software that they would have used in the stores. What was amazing about that experience was that I had a ready-made place to go do ethnography because I could just go to a store. You know? and it, Perfect. And yeah, it turns out also to be a great reason to travel. It's like, I don't know. I think we're just going to have to go see what they're doing in the Covent Garden store this week. Um, you know? <laughs> I so, see what you're doing there. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we would just hang out around the stores and watch. And it was, you know, it was phenomenal to see the interactions between the specialist and the customers, watch them using the handheld point of sale system. At one point, we were trying to do some role playing to understand some ideas for how we might be able to use technology to assist in the initial intro between a specialist and a user. And so we just did role playing with some of the people working in the stores in New York. And, you know, that they had like super useful, interesting, relevant experience. So that was, that was a great way to feed the design. In my current role at ThoughtSpot, like I'm not a data analyst, I'm not a business user. So we have to look to outside, you know, we have to try to understand the mindset of those users and then incorporate that into our design. So it is true that Apple didn't do external design or I'm sorry, external research. Like I was on the online store for six years. We didn't really do any usability studies. We didn't even really do metric stuff. I don't know what they're doing now, but we didn't do it then. But we could do that because we were ourselves users of the product. I don't know how many other places that would work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really valid point. I just want to come back to the presentation in high stakes situations to someone like Steve Jobs. You know, what advice or thoughts do you have for people that might be stepping into a design leadership role that's going to mean that they need to be representing the design organization well at an executive level to their peers and, and even leaders that are more senior to them? How can they prepare and be the most effective that they can be in those situations? Yeah, so these kinds of presentations, I think it's important to distinguish between communicating in headlines and communicating in punchlines. So when you communicate in headlines, it's like, here's the story, and then let me give you the detail, versus in punchlines, let me give you the big lead up, and then I'll have the reveal. If you're trying to sell design work to a, uh, to a customer and to a, a, like a marketing audience at a keynote or something, then you do the punchline bit. Let me explain to you the whole problem, what we were trying to solve. Et cetera, et cetera. Here's the reveal. Everybody's like, whoa, look at that. I didn't expect it. I found that when you're presenting to executives, because they already have all that context, and it's, I found it to be much more effective to just start with the work, like skip the setup. And this, this was another piece that happened. I think two or three of the four times I presented to Steve, there was somebody, a product manager person in the room who tried to like set things up. And let me give you a couple of slides, Steve. And every time he'd be Stop it with the setup, just show me the work. Because the setup is a way of marketing the work. It's a way of trying to avoid and pre-respond to any criticisms of the work. And uh, a seasoned executive will see right through that. They're just not going to accept the setup. It's better to just get straight to the work, which, by the way, is the experience the user is going to have. No user is going to sit through all your setup about, oh, this was the business problem and we did this process and we created these personas and we went through these options and we came up with this solution. Aren't we smart? Like that's not how a user experiences it. <laughs> so it's like, just start with the big scene and get into it. And then later you can kind of then deconstruct it and say, and you know, here's how we got here. And then you can use that to justify it and have that rationale. So with Steve, you know, the successful reviews, it was just, here's the demo. Let me show you a use case. We always had a story. Right. So the user is trying to, you know, in the case of the Apple Store app, somebody's trying to buy an iPhone through the app. That was the first time that you could buy an iPhone 
through the phone, uh, which was a like dramatically simplified the purchase experience because we knew you were already an iPhone customer because you were buying on the phone and we could get all sorts of useful information about you from the phone that would speed up the, uh, the, the pre-authorization process. So you get your subsidy from the carriers and stuff. So there were some simplifying things that happened by doing it on the phone. So we just walked him through that process. Like, Hey, Steve, let me show you how you can buy a new iPhone in four clicks. Like that's a good demo, <laughs> you know? So a bit of context, to... but cut to the chase. Yeah. Yeah. Just show me a day in the life of the user end to end flows. Like, like all the executives I've worked with, including the team at ThoughtSpot, like all the, all the really thoughtful, savvy executives, they want to know about end to end flows. That's the thing that they probably focus the most on because um, the teams in most tech companies, the teams are pretty fragmented. Um, they tend to work on particular areas or layers of the technology. And it's what a, what a friend of mine describes as the factory model. So this designer does this feature, this designer does this feature, this designer does that feature. And hardly anybody really backs up to look at how it's all connected. And I think that's a unique role that design can play. And so when we would show stuff to Steve, when I show stuff in my current roles, when I show stuff at Pinterest, Yahoo, wherever, it was always, let me show you the whole thing beginning to end. And, and that always made a lot more sense and was more meaningful to whoever the decision maker was that we were talking to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How do you think your time at Apple shaped the way in which you see approach and lead design now? You know, it's, it's funny. I used to think that if you started with the right people and enveloped them with the right culture, you would get the right product as a result. And so my view at Apple at the time was that Apple was this culture that took people from the outside and turned them into Apple-like people. After I left the company and I started spending more time studying the Apollo program and particularly how they uh, structured and then staffed mission control, uh, which is a whole other thing, I flipped that and I realized that if you establish the right culture, you'll attract the right people uh, and then you'll get the right product. And so to answer your question, I don't think it's that Apple shaped me, it's that Apple had a culture that fit my view of the world and how I wanted to work. And I got, you know, I, I found that culture and I fit in really quickly because it, it just made sense to me. It's kind of, it's, I mean, frankly, it's, it's like a whole life philosophy. I would say that it's a philosophy that says things can be better. You know, there's a, there's a great quote from Steve that I use when I'm talking to high school students where he talks about, you know, if you ever stop and look around you and realize that everything you see in the built environment was created by people who really aren't any smarter than you. Then you start to realize that everything could be changed and you could probably change it for the better. And I mean, everything. I mean, every, every book cover, just looking around your desk, everything you see in the built environment was created by somebody who's not any smarter than you. Everything could be changed. And once you like really internalize that, the world just seems like so open with possibility of improvement, <laughs> you know, and that's you know that's the spirit of Apple. You know, the like every everybody in that company is focused on making their little thing better. I mean, the company has a patent on the pizza boxes that they serve at Cafe Max because the staff there figured out how to make a round pizza box that would keep the pizzas warm longer, fresher than the typical square cardboard pizza box. So, like even the even the guys making the pizzas are thinking like we can do better. And I don't know where that spirit in me came from, the spirit of continuous growth, but it it's there. That's how I'm oriented towards the world. And, uh, and so I think that fit Apple. And so I fit Apple 
And the places that I've gone after Apple were places I felt embodied that culture as well and embodied that spirit, not a fixed mindset, but a growth mindset. That's, I think that's why I've you know lived in Silicon Valley and called it home for so long. Despite yeah, a lot all of, the other issues with Silicon Valley, but you know, that's yeah, a different and it, topic. Hopefully we'll have some time to come to that as well. There's quite yeah. a few things to get to. You sort of touched on the the notion there that design is about making the world a better place. And a lot of jobs and companies seems to seem to me at least to be a means to an end. You know, people are there. They're not saying they're not doing a, a bad job, you know, but they're, they're mainly there to serve other needs that they have as people. You know, I get the sense, though, in design that being a designer is more of a way of life. You know, I don't see, you know, people in procurement, for example, waking up one day before they decide to get into procurement and saying, I want to be a corporate procurement person, you know, is design a way of life? Is it an attitude? Is it more than what we're doing in terms of pushing pixels around screens? Well, I think for people who are serious about design, it most definitely is, you know, it's, it's a way of life. It's a way of, to me, design is the most fundamental of human activities because it's what, what design fundamentally is, is the ability to project yourself into the future, imagine the future that you want to be in, and then take steps now to bring that future to reality. No other animal that I know of really thinks about the future in the way that humans do. It's sort of a blessing and, and frankly, quite a curse as well. <laughs> but the idea to look into the future and see that it can be better and different and brighter and then take concrete steps to make it so, that's a really powerful mindset. You know, and per Personally, I think we would all be much better off if more people had that mindset. I guess I'm glad I have it. I'm glad you have it, you know? <laughs> and hopefully everyone listening to this podcast has it. And speaking yeah. of podcasts, I listened to one of the recent interviews you gave on the User Defenders podcast, and we've been talking a little bit now about culture. And I think you touched on the fact that computing is your, is your medium. And in that podcast, you said, and I'm just going to quote you now, we live and work in the most important cultural medium of our time, yet none of us can name a famous UI designer. You know, and that's so true. You know, I, yeah. I couldn't, I can't really think of one. I mean, I can think of people like Jeffrey Veen and a couple of others that come to mind when I'm really sort of scratching, you know, scra scratching into my brain and trying to find those things. But I don't think anyone outside of the software would be able to name a famous UI designer. You know, why is this and, and does it matter? Uh, well, I definitely think it matters. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. Like why it is, is because design is fundamentally a collaborative process. And designers are one part of a much larger machine that, that figures out software. And software, strangely, is an unattributed medium. Nobody really knows to the person who works on these things. To the degree there's somebody that's, that's the face of it, it tends to be the CEO of the company. So like we tend to think about Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, you know, and again, to reference the Apollo program, we tend to think about the people that walked on the moon. You know, there was 12 of them in total. There's over 400,000 people that worked on the Apollo program until you really start you know, getting into their stories, which is what like four of those bookshelves of those shelves back there are about, you know, when you really get into their stories, it's phenomenal. Like what, who these people were and what problems they were solving. But the general public knows Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and there was a third guy that had to stay behind in the cab. Um, you know, Michael <laughs> Collins. And Michael Sucks Collins to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, Michael Collins got to go to the moon. Like it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so it's an unattributed medium, which might change over time, but you know we are where we are right now. And then you had, oh, and then does it matter? Yes, it, it matters, and here's why it matters. Software right now is in a really primitive state. 
And most people, most as I call them mere mortals, not people that work in technology and really understand how this crap works, just normal people trying to live their lives. I personally think they go through enormous parts of their day feeling victimized by technology. You and I, when our phone doesn't work, like we kind of know how to fix it. We also know that we're the person that somebody calls when their phone doesn't work. So you have to <laughs> my imagine. My whole life. My whole, your whole life. life. Yeah, 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 I know. Tech support to the world, right? <laughs> Which is probably true of everybody listening to this thing. So imagine what it's like to have to call somebody for help. You know, imagine how demoralizing and how vulnerable you would feel because you are surrounded by technology. Like try to navigate an airport, try to navigate a train station, try to get an Uber, an Airbnb, like it, like try to use a vending machine or an ATM if you don't really understand technology, much less your phone and your computer and your home Wi-Fi network and like everything else. It just goes and goes and goes. Like if you don't really understand that stuff, I'm pretty sure that you're that you're frustrated a lot of the time. You're probably pissed off a lot of the time. And I think because it's unattributed, you don't know who to blame for it. And so you don't know who to hold accountable. And so it seems like there's just this crazy out of control machine that's spinning out this crap that's polluting your life. And if you know who's working on it, you know, if, if you can call them by name, at least you can yell at them, you know, <laughs> which means that, oh, wait, there's a human being in charge of this somewhere. So there's still hope that it could get better. You know, again, because I was lucky I worked at Apple and I used a lot of Apple products, I knew the people that worked on many of the products. And so, you know, much to my family's frustration, when I can't get something to work, I yell at people by name. Um, you know, <laughs> walk down the corridor and go and find you know, well, Steve. Well, not even that. I'm just at home. I'm like, oh my God, Bill, what the hell were you guys thinking yeah. when you did this? You know, and and you know, it's like what, there's a lot of trade offs and decisions. The software is super complicated, but just having just knowing somebody is behind it all demystifies it and makes it seem you know that there's somebody on the other side of it. You know, I, I you and I were talking before we started. You know, I grew up a little bit more in the Cold War. And growing up in the Cold War was a very different existential threat than my kids experienced growing up with climate change. So in my, the existential threat of my youth really relied on two people choosing not to drop a bomb. And I, in my head, I could say, well, I don't think those two people are actually going to do it. And I could make sense of it in that way. But for my kids, like climate change, there's nobody in charge of climate change, right? It's, it is happening. And there's nobody you can point to. There's nobody you can attribute it to that you think if we could just replace that person or if that person would just get their act together, we could take care of this whole thing. And I, I think that's why attribution matters in technology because it turns out in technology, there is somebody in charge of most of these things. Like somebody is making these decisions. And I think if users understood that, they would you know, be more hopeful and optimistic and frankly demanding that these things get better. There's a huge cost of releasing bad products. What do people and product more broadly, so not just designers, people in product management, people that are ex executives that are signing off or approving certain things, anybody that has a responsibility to their users, what do they really need to be asking themselves before they put something out there in the hands of the people that it was designed for? The, you mean the decision makers? I, I'm, yeah, the, the people I, collectively involved in making yeah. these experiences, what do we need to ask ourselves? Well, so us as designers, I think, you know, if you are, if you're in a position where you can do this, you should choose to work in companies where design is a competitive advantage. If the company doesn't compete on design and it doesn't make a difference in their business, you're never going to be terribly successful or impactful as a designer. I know not everybody lives in geographies where those kinds of opportunities are possible, but if you can avoid it, don't work at a place that doesn't value your core skill set. 
And right now the demand for designers has never been higher. So I would encourage everybody to just be honest with themselves when they're looking at jobs is design make a difference to this business. Because I don't necessarily think design is a, is the only business strategy. There's plenty of businesses that do fine without having design in their competitive portfolio. So, you know, it's not a moral imperative that companies compete on design. You should try to pick places that do and go work there. And then if you're in a place where design matters, you know, then you have a empathetic audience with the executives and you always need to get to the executives. Um, that's, you know, if I can give designers any advice, it's always get as close as you can to the key decision makers. Like that is the critical element of your success and your impact is being as close as you can to the people who are going to make the call. The people who can move the deadlines, those are the ones who make the call. <laughs> and and hopefully those people feel honest, you know, not to put too glamour or too big a point on it, but like hopefully they feel some moral obligation to make make users' lives better. And they realize that if they release crap, like it brings people down, like it's a, it's a net negative on their users. And not every executive is going to see it that way. Sometimes they're just going to prioritize their business, but you should try to avoid working with those people if you can. So I, I don't know, when I look at my executives and they're trying to make choices about whether or not to release something, you know, it's, the phrase I've been using lately is we should be releasing things that we're proud of. Like that's the number one metric that I always come back to for myself and for the team you know, is this work that you're proud of? And if you're not proud of it, let's work on it some more and try to get it better. I know that that's not, again, the case in all businesses. And I don't want to think that that's, you know, a simple choice for everyone. I'm, again, I'm fortunate to live in Silicon Valley and there's design opportunities everywhere around me. And I know that's not the case for everybody, but I do think designers have some level of where they want to, uh, uh, where they want to be employed and where they want to deploy their creative and life energy. And I would encourage people to be thoughtful and demanding about that and not put yourself in a situation where you're going to be victimized by quarterly profit and loss numbers. Yeah, hugely important. Bob, it feels like this is a good time to shift gears a little bit and talk about your 2015 TED Talk. And I really enjoyed this talk. It's sort of relevant to the people that are listening because we're living in a time of great change and great uncertainty. And as we were talking before we hit record, where I live in New Zealand's just been pl plunged into a snap lockdown. So I'm now recording from my spare room and we just have to get on with it. My three-year-old's down the hall watching a bit of TV, which I feel a little bit guilty about. But let's bring it back to, to your talk. You had some lessons in that talk that were highly relevant to the here and now. And there is there are three stories in that talk. And I wanted to talk about that first story, which was about conditions to start with. What changed on Friday, October the 4th in 1957? That was the day that Sputnik went into orbit. From a field in Kazakhstan, they launched Sputnik, a basketball-sized satellite, the first man-made object to, or to orbit the Earth. Uh, one of the fascinating things about Sputnik was it was basically a PR program so the Soviet Union could demonstrate their technological prowess to the world. So instead of trying to hide it, they tried to make it super visible. And they did that by creating a satellite that emitted a, a tone a, a beep that was beeping at recurring intervals and that all the world could hear. There was a couple of young researchers at John Hopkins, uh, I believe it was John, John Hopkins, I believe it was John Hopkins, and they uh, immediately, I mean, all, uh, you know, all the rocket nerds in the United States, of course, are all listening for this thing. It goes up, you can hear the beep, beep, beep. You can go get the recordings today from the, I mean, just do a Google search, you'll find the recordings. So they listen to this beep and then using the Doppler shift, 
they were able to calculate the trajectory of Sputnik uh, within a couple of hours. They were able to figure out where Sputnik was based on the Doppler shift. There was another researcher there at John Hopkins who came to them and said, hey, like that's a pretty cool trick. You were able to uh, figure out a moving object in space from a fixed location on the Earth. Could you do that the other way around, which is from a fixed location in space, could you calculate a moving object on Earth? They went away, they played with the math for a little while, and they came back and said, yeah, that would actually be easier. That became a, co a small collection of satellites called the Tyrus satellites, which was the first satellite-based navigation, at least that I'm aware of. There may have been some by the Soviet Union before that, but that's the first that I know about. Kennedy was actually referring to those satellites by 1962 when he made the call for the Apollo program at Rice University in the famous you know, we choose to go to the moon speech. And then that concept of space-based navigation, of course, now is the GPS system, which we all take for granted on our phones and elsewhere. But if you think about navigation, certainly even in World War II, even in Vietnam, much less just, you know, sailing across the ocean in an ocean liner, like GPS is a really big deal. <laughs> like GPS is a massive, massive game changer. Like it's one of those things we just take for granted, like containerized shipping, but it is just a, a transformational technology for, for civilization. And it came out of these two guys, you know, being able to calculate the orbit of Sputnik. And then this other guy saying, wait, we can use that technology in this completely diff different application, which is to figure out Earth-based navigation from fixed objects in space. And it's, you know, the fixed object in space has to do with what's called geosynchronous orbit. If you get a satellite up to 22 and a half thousand miles, then it orbits at the same velocity as the Earth's rotating. So it's in effectively the same position as it rotates around the Earth. People can look up how GPS, uh, how the GPS system actually works. I, I actually encourage you to do it. It's quite, it is phenomenal how the thing actually works and what's actually happening, how your phone's able to get GPS signals and calculate your location. It's mind boggling what is actually going on. But, you know, we all just take it for granted because it's there on our phone. Heck, it's on my watch. I got it right here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's pretty ridiculous, really, how easy it's gotten. You know, what would a Columbus traded for my watch? Columbus would have given anything for my watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so I think the reason you're bringing up the story is, you know, there was this fundamental condition, conditional change. Like we can now put satellites in orbit. That was a fundamental conditional change that had all these downstream effects, the second, third, fourth order effects that nobody immediately recognized. And now, like truly, we've moved into a completely different era. Like we have proven that remote work, that it functions, that productivity can stay high, creativity can stay high. We've proven that we don't have to commute. We've proven that we probably actually want to hang out together in person now and again. You know, we've proven that actually the restaurant experience isn't that great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, like a, a, we've just run this massive, massive experiment and as a certainly in Western society, we have like this complete new model of thinking about how society could be. And there's going to be some people that are going to use this moment and they're going to come up with stuff that is way beyond anything you and I are thinking about. Because if we had those ideas, that's what we'd be doing right now. Um, but this is this is a as big a game changer as the invention of electricity, for example, not the invention, the discovery and propagation of electricity. There's a great article I read a while back about how, you know, like, so electricity comes up, but nobody really knows what to do with it. And it was actually about 20 or 30 years after just electricity kind of went into broader distribution before in the factories, they realized that they could create machines that had localized engines instead of there just being one big engine that turned the whole factory. And, and it, you know, and, the, and the, when you had that, then they started reconfiguring all the 
factories to have smaller electrical engines instead of one big engine. And that was really the, the huge fundamental shift from electricity. And it didn't happen until electricity had been around for 20, 30 years. Arguably, the same things happened now with the internet. Like, certainly we had the internet before the pandemic, but we are using the internet in a completely different way now. And this may have been the internet's kind of really game-changing moment when we realized that, you know, internet connectivity can fundamentally change how human society is organized. It, it may be that. We'll, yeah, it's, we'll it's the conditions have changed as a result of COVID-19 and what wasn't forced upon us uh, now has been forced upon us. And that has meant that we've had new constraints applied to how we live and work. And your second story was all about constraints. And now we're going to get to something that I was was really <laughs> struggling to remember earlier before I cut that bit out of the interview, which I won't cut this bit, which is who was Theodore Geisel and why was he trying to kill Dick and Jane? Uh, so Theodore Geisel was also known as Dr. Seuss. And in 1954, 50, I think it's 1954, there's a famous article that came out in Life magazine by a journalist named John Herschel. And Herschel was um, noting that American school children were not learning to read as quickly as other kids around the world, notably their Soviet counterparts. And he was arguing that the reason they didn't learn to read quicker is because all the reading primers at that point were super boring as Jack and Jill went up a hill. There was just nothing interesting about them. And in that article, he mentioned, how come we can't get some of America's great children's illustrators like Walt Disney or Dr. Seuss? to go off and write children's books. Well, Dr. Seuss's editor saw that. Dr. Seuss's editor at Random House saw that article and he went to, to Ted and he said, hey, do you think you could do a book you know, to teach second graders how to read? And Ted said, well, yeah, sure. That sounds like an interesting project. And so then they said, okay, well, here's the list of 200, I think it was 220 words that a second grader should know. The most complicated word on the list, I believe was together, uh, maybe mother. You know, but everything else is like, you know, about and end and cat and things like that. And so he gets this list of, I think it was, again, like around 220 words. He thinks that he's going to whip up this book in a matter of months. His his other books would typically take a year, um, but he thought this was going to be a super simple project. Months go by. He can't have an idea. He doesn't have any ideas. Like he's just getting really frustrated. And at some point he just says, I'm going to look at the list and the first two words that I can rhyme. I'm just going to figure out the story from that. And he comes across cat and hat. He accepts that constraint. You know, these are the words. I'm, I can do a story with the first two things that rhyme, cat and hat. Okay, I'm going to make a story with that. And of course, he goes on to create Cat and Hat. It's enormously successful, you know, spawns an entire different line of books for Random House, which is the beginner books, which are the smaller Dr. Seuss books that we all, you know, teach our kids to read with. The Cat and the Hat's one of them. Go Dog Go, who was actually written by P.D. Eastman, um, is another in that line. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Brown and Moo. There's, there's many others in that line that, that are about kids learning to read. And of course, you know, uh, Cat in the Hack is financially successful for him. He buys a beautiful house out in uh, San Diego and the rest is magic. But, you know, the, I always come back to he accepted the constraints. I mean, you could sort of like sit around there and say, well, could we throw in a couple of extra words? Could I invent some words? Which is what he kind of famously did, inventing word, words like nerd and Lorax and many others. He invented many words. But with Cat in the Hat, it's like, no, I'm going to stick to this thing. And then as I, as I mentioned in the talk, like Cat in the Hat's arguably a rather subversive book because it's about two young kids getting into all this trouble while their mom's away. And you have to remember the, the context. This is the mid to late 50s when, you know, children were seen and not heard. 
And society is very, you know, in the Western world, very uptight and very hierarchical and very misogynistic. And so, you know, the kids, uh, the, the mom goes away, the kids get into all this trouble with the cat, but the cat's like, man, don't stress. We'll clean everything up. It'll be spick and span by the time mom gets home. She doesn't really need to know. Today, we might sort of laugh about it, but, you know, in the 1950s, it's a pretty subversive idea, mm -hmm. actually. It actually um, sounds like an analogy for remote work. <laughs> maybe so. Like the boss doesn't really need to know, like the, you know, the hierarchical authorities maybe don't need to know everything that's going on. Are you saying that so, I didn't need to make this bit up behind me before we recorded? <laughs> you didn't for me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Seuss constraints, man. Love them. I mean, you know, when he wrote, uh, I think it was, um, green eggs and ham was actually written on a bet with a buddy that he could write a book using, I think it was less than 80 words, something like that. And so it was just, it was just that one. It, it, by then, like he's kind of leaning into the constraints. He's like, oh, it's actually kind of interesting to take this limited vocabulary and try to make a children's book out of it. That's actually an interesting, fun, technical writing problem. So he sort of like leaned into the constraints. And I think as designers and software, we're often like, well, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? You know, at some point you kind of have to settle into it and sort of say, okay, these are the constraints. Maybe it's a constraint of time. Maybe it's a constraint of resources. Maybe it's requirements. Like there's all sorts of different types of constraints. But, you know, if you just accept the constraints, there's like, it's actually really liberating because it takes a lot of options and optionality and, you know, procrastination ideas. It takes all that crap out of, out of your head and says, okay, this is the problem. And it can be very centering and very focusing if you'll lean into it and embrace it. Do you think that the reason why so many people have had trouble dealing with, and I'm oversimplifying here, probably quite grossly, but trouble dealing with the change in constraints that COVID-19 has meant for us has been because that wasn't a choice that they exercised to lean into. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that's a ton, ton of it. And the, the uncertainty, like when is this going to end? And there's a lot of people that, you know, unlike you and I don't have a spare bedroom that they can work from. So we're super privileged and lucky to have that. I would in no way diminish that when I, when we went into lockdown at my company. We have a number of number of my colleagues work in India, for example, and, and even many of them here in Silicon Valley. Their living situations are very different, and so for them, you know, not having the office was definitely an issue. But yeah, the lack of control. You know, Doc, Theodore Geisel's life was not going to change whether he had two hundred twenty words or five hundred words. Like it wasn't. You know, this this wasn't an existential constraint. You know, it was a, it was a constraint that he chose to embrace. When I talk about constraints, I might sort of limit that a little bit to thinking about it in the creative context. Like as a creative, it's good to kind of embrace the constraints of the creative problem. In your life, you know, constraints to a point can maybe be helpful, but constraints can also turn to oppression pretty quickly. Well, let's get to the third story. And the final <laughs> story was about conviction. Oh, this is a great story. What is the significance of the words somewhat as a voice in the wilderness? Yeah, so the third story is about John Hubolt, who was uh, one of the, the one of the people involved in the in the Apollo program, and he was the guy that uh, championed the concept of lunar orbit rendezvous. And the idea of lunar orbit rendezvous is that you take two spacecraft to the moon. One of them is designed solely for the lunar landing and therefore is optimized for weight, and the other one is heavier, won't go to won't go to, to the lunar surface, but will be the craft that you use to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere which is more demanding uh, in terms of material science and whatnot. So when Kennedy announces the space program or announces the Apollo mission in 1962 at Rice, there were actually three different ideas on the table. One of them was you'd put two spacecraft into Earth orbit, 
And then you would take one of those to the moon and land it. That's called Earth Orbit Rendezvous. There was another that you would just build a big, gigantic rocket, and you'd fly that sucker to the moon. You'd land on the moon with this big, giant thing, and then you'd come back. Um, that was actually the favored approach. That was the approach that Werner von Braun was championing because Werner von Braun was ultimately a rocket guy. And so he just thought to build a bigger rocket. That was the idea that Kennedy actually wanted to do. And John Hubolt had discovered a paper from a guy named Yuri Kondratyak, who was, a, I believe, Ukrainian polymath, who in the 19 teens, I think it was around 1917, came up with the idea of lunar orbit rendezvous. And the story, I think, is somewhat about Yuri Kondrachak. He ended up dying in one of Stalin's uh, camps and is relatively unknown. And I've only been able to find a couple of pictures of him. And I'm not even sure that that's actually, they're not even sure that's actually his name. You know, the notion that there's this guy in 1917 in Ukraine who's looking at the moon and not just thinking about how to go to the moon in a Jules Verne sort of science fiction fantasy kind of way. He's actually thinking about how to go to the moon like actually working the problem. And he realizes that the problem of landing on the moon is one of weight and that it's just going to be enormously difficult to get a big mass of stuff into Earth orbit and then to land it on the moon. So he, so he comes up with this idea. John Hubolt in the 60s comes across his paper and he realizes that not only is lunar orbit rendezvous a way to get to the moon, it is indeed the only way to get to the moon. And so he's fairly down in the NASA hierarchy He's not getting a good hearing on this idea, <clears throat> and he writes what's generally known as the most famous memo in NASA history, and he writes it right to the guy who's head of the program, goes completely outside of the hierarchy, which is like way out of protocol, definitely danger, risking his danger. job. Danger, danger. Yeah, yeah. Certainly at that point in time, really, really risking his job. And the memo starts with, somewhat is a voice in the wilderness. And then, and then the memo, I think it's like 12 pages, and he works the problem. He's got the illustrations. He's got the math. Like... He proves the point. And it took some more time, like the story of how he sold it takes it takes a little bit more time. I mentioned it in the TEDx talk because John Hubold had the courage of his convictions. Like he saw that idea and he said, no, no, this is this is not an idea. This is the idea. This is the only thing that's going to work. And he was willing to stand by it and sell it through the hierarchy. And I share that story a lot of times with my designers. I could give you examples from design as well where one of the somebody on the team had a particular idea for how we should do something i as the authority you know maybe had had dismissed it early on uh, there's certainly examples where i told them that i thought it was silly and they should stop working on it and much to their credit they ignored me they worked on it some more they built a prototype or something and they brought it back to me later showed it to me again and i was like dang you're right man like that's that's genius that's brave so, as well, right? Like that's brave to go outside of the hierarchy. It's also brave once your senior leader has told you that they don't think it's a good idea to have another go at it. Yeah, but you know, it's it's where the magic happens. You got to That's I mean, that's sort of the point, man. You got to have the courage of your convictions. You got to stand. But you know, if you really believe in the idea, you got to stand by it. And you know, if you have a good manager, I like to think I'm an okay manager at least. You know, if you have a good manager, when the when the employee, you know, when the, when the person shows some initiative and they come back and they prove out the idea. Like you're really going to listen to them. Like it's one of those things I've, I, I want to know how much you care before I care how much you know. And so if somebody on my team has like real passion around an idea, I will listen to them. I actually get really disappointed when I push on their ideas and they cave. Um, I find that really frustrating. I'm like, if you don't really love the idea, I'm not quite sure why you're wasting my time sharing it. <laughs> I, I want you to defend the idea. I want you to push back. 
But there's some there are some subtleties in that though, right? Like you talked about having passion as being important, not being you know the first to cave, but the the first sign of uh, of pushback. So I'm getting a sense of what that might be. But if we think about that memo um, that was written to the to the head of NASA at the time, it seemed like he led with some humility as well. Like how much of mm -hmm. that has to do with the success of taking a risk, being brave, going outside the hierarchy, and and having a crack at something where you know most people at the at the current moment don't support your view. Yeah. So look, your mileage may vary, and I won't speak about everybody's manager. The way I try to conduct things is I want to fight really hard about the ideas. And as long as we're fighting and arguing about the ideas, I'm all good. Like you should totally challenge me. If it becomes about your ego and it or my ego and it becomes about somebody winning, now we're into a, a dysfunction I don't want to get into. You know, that's that's where things get complicated and unfortunate politically. If it's just about me winning and getting my paw prints in the product, that's not gonna work. But if it's about the ideas, that's a conversation every company should be willing to have. And, and be willing to have, you know, every functional company um, should be willing to have that in a really productive, healthy, but, you know, uh, vigorous manner. And I saw that over and over at Apple. Like, like there'd be moments where maybe our, on the online store, we had a disagreement with retail or something. And over and over, you'd see the executives kind of back up and say, well, wait a minute. If I think with my Apple hat, you know, which was always the line, if I think with my Apple hat, this is what we should do, you know, or... We would often use the phrase, well, you know, what's the Apple way to do this? And you'd see in meetings when it got a little bit to be about ego and one person's like ego versus another person's ego. And the company had a couple of different phrases and the executives had phrases that would pull it out of that ego contest really quickly and move it into what's the right thing to do. And to go back to, you know, where we were a couple minutes ago, when I presented to Steve or the other executives, like they never, they never won. Like we never, Steve never wanted us to to do something because he was CEO, like he just made really good, I'll say forceful, but he was right. He made good arguments about why the idea that he was advocating for was the right idea. You know, you'd end up kind of naturally adopting the ideas because you because be you believed in them too, right? So in that context though, right, like this is the CEO, did you fear him? Did you fear that feedback? No, no, no. Like, look, I think different people had different responses to Steve. I, and I think Steve was really very gifted at sizing up somebody and figuring out whether they would be more motivated by anger or dis or the threat of disappointment. And so I think <laughs> all these stories about him being an asshole and stuff, I actually think in many instances, certainly in his later parts of his career, he purposely thought that he could get a better performance out of certain people if he pissed them off. So I think there's some cases where he tried to do that on purpose. In my case, and I'm sure it was patently evident to him, my biggest concern was disappointing him. I would just have been devastated to disappoint Steve Jobs. Like you just, <laughs> you wanted to do something great because you wanted him, you wanted his approval. You wanted, you know, you wanted to know that you had met the bar that Steve Jobs has. And the guy, the designers on my team, they all felt the same way. It was, you know, I mean, as memorable as it was, those few moments I, I had the privilege to present to Steve, you know, even more so to get to come back to the team, you know, and tell them that their work had had passed muster, you know, like it was just such a great moment of pride for everybody. So, and I think as a design leader, you know, I, I try to use more of the disappointment piece. I'm not really, I don't, I don't try to motivate people by anger, but you can see sports analogies. You can definitely see coaches, you know, coaches 
uh, different coaches have different styles and they motivate their teams in different ways. I wouldn't necessarily want to be around someone who motivated people through anger. I don't think that's just the the environment I'd want to be in. So I think the disappointment ones, the disappointment ones, more. Know, it's just a place. It's the kind of place I'd much rather work. And I also liked how you you told the story there of how at Apple you would create almost a third space for when you realized you were getting into an ego context, you would ask yourself questions like, well, what's the Apple way of doing this? And I assume that that relies on people having a really shared and clear understanding of what the Apple way is for a start. But it it almost seems like that would have diffused the situation and that there might've been some stories or, or other sort of cultural touch points that supported those questions that you would then use to actually bring things back to what's actually best for the company or what's best for the users. Yeah, look, Apple's been around for a long time, so Apple has a good idea of who they are. You know, I have, mm. this, I have this joke that companies they develop and age sort of like human beings do. And so, if you're at a five-year-old startup, you know, they kind of behave like a five-year-old. You know, <laughs> like occasionally have accidents at night, but you know, and they're a little out of control. Two-year-olds are pretty nutty. Um, you know, by the or time a seventy-five-year-old, yeah, <laughs> yeah. By the time you get to be a teenager, you think you have the world all figured out, but turns out you just haven't really been challenged yet. You know, in your twenties, like Google. You're sort of coming in, I guess they're like mid-20s. You know, they're kind of like a mid-20-year-old. They're kind of finding their feet. And Google's probably more mature than that. But Apple's like 40, 40 or 45 now. Like Apple kind of knows who they are. And so when you work there, there is an Apple way of thinking about stuff. And I used to, you know, I used to talk about that, like there was this platonic ideal of what it meant to be Apple. And that didn't emanate from anybody. Like nobody owned that. Like it didn't, it wasn't Steve. Steve didn't, he didn't radiate Apple. There was an Apple way of doing things and your success at Apple as a creative was basically in your ability to channel the Apple way of doing things. And so we would often kind of debate that. Is this the way Apple would do it? And you can tell that Apple is one of the few companies that's gotten to this level of refinement because I could grab somebody off the street and I could ask them to picture an Apple car or an Apple house or an Apple chair, and they could actually reasonably come up with a picture. Um, Whereas if I went to you and I said, imagine a Facebook car, like you probably couldn't. Like, you're not, I don't know if you really, I can't get a picture of a Facebook car any more than I could get a picture of a Twitter, uh, a Twitter chair, right? I don't, I don't know what those brands mean in different mediums, but I do have a sense of like what a, what a North Face car might be, or, you know, what a, what a Leica train might be. Like there are brands that have enough stuff around them that you can, you know, you can reliably transmute them into a different medium. And I think that's an interesting sign of how mature is that design ethos for that particular company. Um, and again, in the tech space, there's just not many companies that have gotten that refined because it's just not that many tech companies have been around that long. Yeah. And a lot of those tech com- companies that you mentioned also haven't really produced any tangible products. So I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that Apple was able to imbue its design sensibilities into things that are physical, not just, uh, as we were talking about before, software, which is sort of uh, yeah. has a level of anonymity to it and it changes really, really rapidly. Yeah. I mean, so like maybe we could imagine a Nintendo car. I don't know if we could imagine a Sony car. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You know, like, um, could we reliably? Yeah, we could probably come up with a brawn chair. We could probably imagine that. <laughs> As a design leader, Bob, how much of your day-to-day now is about telling stories to your team and to the wider organization? That's much about telling stories. I think my week goes between critiquing design work um, almost like a director, like a movie director. Like uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, we do all our design reviews on Tuesday. We call them Super Tuesday. And Tuesdays are about five or six hours of me and design reviews looking at different parts of the product. 
And so I, as that's evolved, I think it's a little bit like me giving daily notes on a film. And then other parts of my week are about helping people with their careers or, you know, develop, helping them through certain decisions. And that's a lot of storytelling. And then there's um, a, another substantial part of my week that's about selling the design work into different parts of the organization. And that's almost exclusively storytelling. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a communication style that's natural and easy for me. As, as you noted, I have, have a degree in radio, television, film and film production. You know, there I, I sort of approach a lot of this stuff like it's a movie when I talked about presenting, you present in headlines, you present use cases, um, you walk people through the flow, you know, there's a beginning, a middle and an end, there's a conflict, there's a solution, there's a resolution. That's how I present a lot of the design ideas and a lot of the solutions we come up with kind of are through that, that lens. Speaking of design critiques, it is Tuesday, as you've mentioned, and I, I do know that you've got something to go to, which may very well be a design critique after <laughs> Actually, the podcast. Actually, it's an executive sync, but... <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds important. So let's bring things yeah. down to a close. Given the state of the world and our culture and also our industry, what's your greatest hope for the people working in software today? Oh, you know, I just hope people... Well, I'll talk about the design piece of software in particular. I hope that they take it seriously. You know, I, I really do believe that software is the greatest, most important and influential cultural medium that we're trafficking in right now. I think the product of Silicon Valley, the products of Silicon Valley may well be, have had a bigger cultural influence on the world than, than the output of Hollywood, for example. I think that one's probably still pretty close, but as an expression of American culture, it's hard to see something that's had a bigger impact than the products of Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. So when I talk to designers, I just hope that they uh, take seriously the medium that they have the privilege to work in. I hope that they learn about the medium, which means learning about the history of it, where these ideas came from, You know that they read uh, stuff by Vannevar Bush, who first came up with the idea of kind of GUI style computing back in the 1940s. You know, that they study the work of Alan Kay, who came up with the, the star computer, I believe, at, at Xerox Park. The, the, whole, the whole history of these ideas is, is, is it's not something that just came up yesterday. Like there is decades and decades and decades of amazing people uh, doing amazing work that led to what we experience today. It's very much like the Apollo thing. Like, don't get so hung up on Neil Armstrong. Like, dig into the stories and find, find the John Hubolts, you know, find the Gene Kranzes, find your heroes that you can relate to that are just normal people doing their job, but doing extraordinary jobs in this amazing moment in time. Embrace the medium. You know, you're, if you were a jazz musician, you would know a hundred albums and you would be able to play a hundred Miles Davis riffs and you would know them backwards and forwards. Do you know that many apps? If I talk to you tomorrow and I said, can you name your five favorite apps and why? Like, don't tell me Snapchat because you use it all the time. Like, you know, tell me, I don't know, tell me Lark because you thought that the way that they did the onboarding with the slider was really cool, you know, or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing opportunity and privilege and moment to work in a phenomenal medium. So I just hope people embrace that and they bring some of their passion and joy into the products and they create products that they're truly proud of. Because I do believe in computing. I do believe fundamentally that personal computing can have a transformative effect on the lives of individuals. That's not necessarily the moment we're in right now, but I do believe that. And I hope we, we find a way to get back to it. 
It's an important and powerful message to finish on. Bob, thank you. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. We've certainly covered a lot of ground. You've told some amazing stories. And I really just want to say thank you for so generously sharing those with us today. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. I really appreciate the opportunity. So yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for sharing your guest room. You're most welcome. (laughs) You're most welcome. (laughs) Bob, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, right now, LinkedIn is the easiest place to find me. I'm just there under my own name. I am also on Twitter. This is Bob Baxley. Also pretty easy to find. Uh, you mentioned a few of my talks. Uh, there's this tool called Google. It'll get you to most of them. Some <laughs> of them are on YouTube. Some of them are on Vimeo. But many of the talks you mentioned are, are readily available at an internet streaming service near you. Perfect. Thanks, Bob. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered, including Bob's talks that he's just mentioned, I'll be linking to in the show notes. And uh, also we can find Bob on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX, product and design, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!